this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. Today, I'm ready to receive the incorruptible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. I'll never be the same again. Never, never, never. In Jesus' name, amen. Best shout ever. Amen. All right, Victoria Kate's going to read with us this morning. All right, I'll be reading Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind will see, the lame will walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man do you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of the wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Amen. Can you give God a hand? You may be seated. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here today. We started a series last week on Easter called Fact Check. And what we're doing is going through, is Jesus who he says he is? Is it a reality? Here's the thought from last week in the scripture. And we'll pull this up every week. So we'll start here every week. From day one, the resurrection story of Jesus was touted as fake. Even his own followers thought it nothing more than nonsense. So we did at least land here last week that of the 11, 12 guys that followed Jesus, every one of them were skeptical. Every one of them thought it was fake when he came back from the dead, and every one of them struggled to believe it in the beginning. So we kind of said we're in good company. Here's the scripture, and then we'll jump right into today. Verse 9 on resurrection morning, they come back from the tomb, and they told everybody what had happened. And then this is the story, verse 11 in pink and blue. But the story, they said, sounded like nonsense, and they just did not believe it that everything about it just was kind of off kilter. And so here's the thought of the day. And this is what I want to talk about today and for the weeks ahead. I want to talk about the crisis in the Christ and defining what we really believe. This is just my opinion here. My opinion is that the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, that we've, we follow more emotionally than we do doctrinally. In other words, we're looking more for an experience than the ability to explain it. And so we end up with Christians who are giddy about Jesus. They get goosebumps on their arm. They have experiences with God. But if you sat down with them and said, tell me why you think he's the only way. Tell me why you think he's God. Tell me why Christianity is more powerful than Buddhism, if it is, or Hinduism, or any ism out there. And many Christians 
can talk about they love Jesus but would have a very hard time over a cup of coffee sitting down debating why is he truly who he says he is if he is that. And so my goal over this whole thing is to bring us all to a place of defining what we believe. If we cannot define what we believe, at best we're weak, passive people. If we cannot define what we believe, at best we'll get our feelings hurt, we'll pout, we'll give up, we'll give God the middle finger, we'll become an atheist, we'll become agnostic, or we'll just give up altogether and go, hey, I'm okay with God, but that religious stuff is not for me. You can do it, but I'm good. Been there, done that. So all of those can become kind of expressions of what happens when we really don't know what we believe. And what I would like to do today is to help define from a, not just a theoretical, but a, a very factual, is Jesus who he says he is and is he worth living for? Here's the scripture Victoria Kate read. When Jesus finished these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in the towns throughout the region in the green John the Baptist was in prison heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. To really get a good feel of what's going on, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. So John the Baptist has this real kind of family connection. I, I don't think they did Thanksgiving and Christmas together. Those didn't exist yet. But I bet they did some birthdays together. They grew up together. We know that. So John the Baptist is not just some random stranger. He was very connected to the family of Jesus. They shared the same aunts and uncles. They shared birthday parties together. They grew up together. And at this juncture of John's life, we, we're introduced to him that he's sitting in prison. And while he's sitting in prison, he's hearing about everything Jesus is doing. I don't know. I read it and I tried to think through how would I feel if Jesus picked everybody else but me? Why does everybody else get to follow him around? Why did, why did the 12, even the 12 he picked are not even kin to him? Why didn't he pick me to be one of the 12? Did I hurt his feelings? Did I bother him? So I don't know what he feels while he's in prison watching his cousin run the countryside with a bunch of uh, ruffians talking about the kingdom while I sit here in this prison cell. And then, not only am I in this prison cell, I have to hear about all the stuff that this Jesus dude is out there doing. I have to hear about all the stuff that my mother told me about him, and my Aunt Mary told me about him, and I even remember baptizing him and seeing strange things happen from heaven and hearing voices, but I really didn't get to be part of his little, his little comrades of people that are running around. I'm left high and dry here. And so as would be anybody, the next verse really enlightens us to what's going on with cousin John. And this is what he says. He says, I need to know something. He called his followers to him. So John gets all of his followers and said, dude, I got, to, I got you. You have to go ask him something. Now here's the strange thing. He says, I just need to know, is he the one that we say he is or should we look for somebody else? It's this moment in his life where he's troubled. This moment where he can't rationalize what everybody's told me about him. Is it really true or not? I'm in prison because I believe in him, but I don't want to stay in prison if he's a fake. And so what I need you to do is go out there and clarify for me what's really going on. 
I need you to clarify for me, is he the one? And here's the weird thing. He didn't ask them to go tell Jesus to bust him out. I don't know why. I mean, if it's my cousin and my cousin's out there walking on water raising dead people, I would have probably said, hey, go tell cuz, come bust me out of jail. We know he can do that because he did it with Peter. He sent angels and bust him out of jail. So I don't think it would have been hard for Jesus. He brought Lazarus out of a tomb. Could he not get me out of a jail cell? But there's something about John sitting there that doesn't even allude to, I need him to come bust me out of jail to prove who he is. I need to know who he is, whether he busts me out of jail or not. And I need you to go ask him. So here's what I've landed on, the thought being, one thing is certain, the crisis will force you to define what you truly believe. You will never know what you believe until you're in a crisis. You can sit at an altar with the love of your life and make the dumbest confession, till death do us part. We are in this thing for life until you kill me or I kill you, we're in it. And then a crisis hits and you'll find out real quickly what you believe about marriage when a crisis hits. Whether you really believe till death do us part or if that was just a saying. Crisis reveal the real you. You want to know what's inside of you? Just put yourself in a crisis and what's inside of you will be squeezed out of you. One thing I know is it's hard to fake it when you're in the middle of a crisis. If you're bitter at God, you'll be bitter in the middle of a crisis. And if you have these weird expectations of God and in the middle of a crisis, He will be defined of what kind of God is He to you. And so John finds himself here in the middle of a crisis having to determine what do I really believe about God? What do I really believe? Uh, giving's the same way. You know, preachers and Christians, you need to give, 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 tithe. But you really don't understand the power of it until you're looking at your wallet going, dude, I'm broke. You understand what you really believe when you're in a crisis. Do you really believe it pays to be a giver? Do you really believe it pays to serve God? So here's what we find out from the scripture if we keep reading it. So Jesus tells John's followers, go back. This is the most irritating passage of scripture probably ever for me. <laughs> go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. And tell him this, the blind see, the lame walk, and those with that leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And, he added, God blesses those who don't fall away because of me. And in reading that, I'm like, that just irritates me. Like, here I am in prison for you, and the best you got is to tell me all the good things you're doing for other people and not me. So you're healing everybody, but you won't bust your cousin out of prison. So you can heal blind people, but you can't do something to Herod to get me out of this dump? So I don't know what he's feeling here, but I guarantee you he's not just like, oh, this is the best day ever. They come back and they go, look, man, blind people are healing. Well, what about me? Deaf people are healing. Well, why won't he bust me out? Well, he's raising dead people. Well, doesn't he even know I'm in prison? Yeah, he knows you're in prison because he sent us to just tell you all this. Did he give you the keys to the prison? No. Did he do any kind of magical power? No. He just said, come back and tell you that he's doing all this cool stuff. Oh, by the way, he, he did want us to know that he's out here curing people, but what he wants to tell you 
is that be careful that you don't fall away because of him. And when I read that, I put it in red because I, I connected cured to fall away. And I've realized that a lot of people don't quit following God because the devil. If the devil has enough power to keep you from following God, you wouldn't be here today. You'd have laid in bed and just said, I don't need God. The devil doesn't have the power to keep you from coming to God. If he did, nobody would be to God. But I'll tell you one thing that destroys most people is most people fall away because of Jesus, not the devil, because when Jesus doesn't perform for them, they leave. When they don't cure me, I fall away. When he doesn't remedy my problem, I fall away. When he doesn't answer my prayer, I fall away. When he doesn't fix my marriage, I fall away. Because I'm driven to be cured. And if he's not going to cure me, if he's not going to answer my prayers, if he's not going to perform for me, if he's not going to put a little smile on his face and bust me out of prison, I don't really give a rip what he does about other people. I need him to fix me. I need him to help me. And so there's this moment here where his cousin is in the middle of a moment of Jesus could have done something, but why didn't you do something? But then you tell me all the somethings you're doing, and then you don't do it for me, and then you tell me to uh, don't fall away when you don't perform. So I wrestled with this for a long time. I wrestled with all the questions of well, why wouldn't Jesus bust him out? It's his cousin. Why would he leave him there in prison? And then the thing that bothered me the most is John didn't even ask him to bust him out. John's just like, all I need to know, look, Jesus, I'm not asking you to come get me out. I'm all for you. That's why I'm in here. I'm, I'm, I'm swinging for the fences for you. That's why I'm here. Look, I'm not asking you to come get me out, but I am going to say this. If I'm going to stay in here and go all the way, I need to settle the issue. Are you the dude or are you not the dude? Because once I decide that, I'm good. And so here's the thought that comes to rest. Many fall away when Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations. We don't really want a God. We just want somebody that performs for us. We just want somebody that bows to our every whim. I mean, after all, if he's not going to answer every prayer I pray, I'm out. If he's not going to heal my elbow, I'm out. If he's not going to jump when I say jump and perform when I say perform and come bust me out of prison, well, he's not worthy to be saved or served. And so then the issue becomes, then what makes him God? Because any human would say, well, what makes him God is he busts me out of my circumstances. Well, what makes him God is he answers prayer. What makes him God is, well, he does miracles. He cures people. He helps people. What makes him God? And I think we could sell that. Like, he performs. And if he outperforms everything else, if he gives you more peace than the weed, then he must be God. If he heals you before the doctor, well, he must be God. But this story lends that there's something bigger than he's God because he performs. There's something his cousin knows that when I read through it, I had to ask myself, do I know it to that level that he's God whether he performs for me or not? Or he's God when I feel like he let me down. Or he's God 
when I'm watching him bless everybody else but me. I'm the one going through the hell here. And if he's God, then how come all these sinners do better at life than me? And how come to all these people over here do better? Because I see no difference between the Christians and the sinners. They all suffer the same thing. So what's the point of him being God? If he's going to let all these babies die on the planet, if he's going to let bad things happen to good people, then, then he's not God. Because if he is, here's reasoning, human reasoning, if he is God, he's going to perform to the level that I think he should perform to. So he needs to kill all the pedophiles. He needs to just get rid of all the, the abortions. He just needs to keep all these children from being hurt and molested. Because if he's God, he will perform in such a way that any God would do it. And then we would reason he's God. But when you live in a God-forsaken, fallen planet and you're looking around, well, why are the good kids die with the bad ones? And why do good Christians get sick with the evil people? And why do evil people do better than the Christian people? Okay, he's probably not God. But mother told me he's God, so he's God. But I don't know. But grandmother said, but I don't know. And I'm wondering why John, from what we know, did not wrestle with this. Because what we find out about John is this. Here's what the story goes on. It's a weird story. This is the guy that questions, are you real? And this is the end of his life. It was a birthday party. And at a birthday party for Herodias' daughter, she performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So she's probably kind of like a Michael Jackson spirit. She's got it. She's got the move. She's busting the move. She's all decked out in her tight, whatever. Whatever she was doing was a good enough dance that he promises on a vow that whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So, at her mother's urging, shows you the power of a mother, all I want is the head of John the Baptist on a tray. So the king regretted it, he said it, but because of his vow he made in front of his guests, he issued the order. Now here's what irritates me. What irritates me is Herod seems to perform on a better level than God. Because his daughter was like, I just want the head of John the Baptist. Oh, absolutely, I could pull that off for you. And then I got John the Baptist in prison going, hey, I just want to... You would think Jesus would pull something off for him. I mean, if an earthly fella named Herod can do more to grant a request, why won't God grant my request? I don't know what it was like when he issued the necessary order. I'm sure John heard all the parties. He's like, man, I hope they... And then all of a sudden he hears a knock on the cell. He's like, hey, maybe they brought me some cake. So they walk in. He's like, I get some cake today? I mean, kind of glad y'all having a birthday party. Well, the cake is your head. And so here's the next verse. It gets interesting. So John was beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. you got to love this birthday party. It's like something out of a Stephen King novel. Later, I don't know how long, obviously not long enough his body was rotten, but later John's disciples came for his body and buried him. And they went and told Jesus what had happened. Like at this point, what does it matter? It's too late. He already took one for the team. So here's what I, I don't really fathom about John. Whatever report they brought back when he said he's raising the dead, he's healing the blind, he's healing the mute, 
He's curing people. The good news is being preached. Whatever that meant to me, as in, that's a terrible answer. Come bust me out. It must have been an answer for John that he was not going to throw in the towel. It didn't matter what happened to him. He was certain that this guy named Jesus was God. It blew his mind because he was willing to take one for the team. They go back and tell Jesus. Here's where it gets interesting and irritating at the same time. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote place to be alone. Okay, I guess that makes me feel better. I'm dead, but you feel bad I'm dead, so I guess that's a good friend. Thank you, cuz. But the crowds heard where he was and headed and followed on foot to many towns. And Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped in front of the boat. And this is irritating. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. It brought me to this question of a thought. Here it is. So Jesus had compassion on everybody else? And all I got was beheaded on my birthday? Is that the way this religion goes down? You're out there having compassion on people you don't even know? You're having compassion on people you've never grown up with? You're having compassion on people that aren't even your kin? And for me, you let me take one for the team so that my head becomes the cake for somebody's birthday party? Now that's Mark Evans reading into it. That's me trying to go, what is going on? What what about this John the Baptist does he know that I don't know? Why is he not mad? Why is he not questioning? Why is he not upset? Why is he not saying, no, don't kill me. I'm not really sure who he is. Like he just, matter of fact, he just gave his life for what he believed. So we go back to Jesus to see something that Jesus said that will tell us why. Here's the question. Why in the world would John the Baptist of all people stay in the game? I think he has every reason to get out. My cousin forgot me. My cousin let all this bad stuff happen to me. My cousin didn't even care. He had compassion on everybody but me. He answered everybody's prayer but mine. I guess he could have gone there, but he didn't go there. He stayed in the game. And what he believed about Jesus was incredibly awe-inspiring. And here's what Jesus says about John. It'll tell us a little bit about why he stayed in the game. As John's disciples were leading, Jesus began to talk to him, talk about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go out to see in the wilderness? A weak one? A man that's swayed by mere circumstance? Like what were you, in red, what were you expecting to see? Because now Jesus takes this story and lets us know the reality of all humanity. At our core, we live by our expectations. And if God doesn't meet my expectations, He's not God. It's humanity at its best. If your expectations aren't met, you quit going to the coffee shop. If your expectations aren't met, you quit going to the restaurant. If your expectations aren't met, you find a new girlfriend. If your expectations aren't met, you get a new marriage. If your expectations aren't met, you get a new job. You get a new car. Because anytime humanity, their expectations aren't met, we look for alternatives. And that was John. I need to know who he is 
because my expectations are not being met because I'm in jail while he's performing. I just need to know who he is. So look at what Jesus says about him. Well, I'll tell you something about him. He's not a weak man. And he's not a man that's swayed by circumstance. Maybe Jesus was looking into 2022 and saw me. I don't know. I don't know who he saw. But I know what he defined for me about John. Is that weak men will leave the game when things don't go their way. Weak believers get out the moment circumstances are bad. Well, preacher didn't call me. I'm leaving. Well, somebody hurt my feelings today. I'm out. I gave $5 an offering, got nothing back. I'm done. My husband left me. He's not God. My child died. He's not God. My wife got killed by a drunk driver. Not God. Cancer everywhere in the world. He's not God. Because I'm driven that if this God up there who's the creator doesn't meet my expectations, then he's not God because the only way he could be God is to level himself up to my expectations. And if he doesn't level up, well, then I'll find other things to level. I'll become addicted to things. I'll run my own race. I'll live my own life. I'll, I'll go after my own dreams. Not this guy. This guy had one dream and one dream only. I just need to know who you are, and once I know, I'm good. I'll be able to go through anything once I know who you are. Once you define for me who you are, I'm good. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you who he was. He wasn't some weak man. My, this is my opinion. I think the church has done a terrible thing that we've wait, raised weak, weak men. Weak men, just weak men. Just don't even want to fight for their families. Don't want to fight for the kingdom. Don't want to fight for what they believe. Just give me a job. I'm pouty if you don't call me. If you don't do this for me. If God doesn't do this for me. I'm out of here because if God doesn't perform for me. Weak men don't keep the gospel going forward. Weak Christians don't move the gospel forward. Fellas that are young over here, we don't have time to pout in this generation. I know it sucks sometimes, but we need guys and men that will rise up and go, I don't want to be weak, swayed by everything that doesn't go my way. So I had a bad Monday. He's still God. So it didn't go my way at work. He's still God. So they let me go and fired me. Well, I'll tell you, they'll just miss a blessing. He's still God. My elbow still hurts, but he's still God. I had five funerals to go to this week, but he's still God. It takes those kind of people to stay in the game. It takes men and women who, yeah, we cry, and yeah, we have a moment where we go, what in God's name? And yes, we're human, and we're going to ask the question, is he really who he says he is? But how long are you going to keep asking that? I'm good if you ask it once, twice, three times a lady. I'm good with that. That was all good a minute. Once, twice. But you've been saved 25 years and you're still asking the question? Either he is who he says he is or he's not. And this was John. Here's where it gets really interesting. Because Jesus is going to tell us what John believed that was bigger than the circumstance that kept him in the game when he should have left the game. Here's what Jesus says about him. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. But he was more than a prophet. I love this. This inspires me. 
makes my belly get bigger. <laughs> Think he gained weight. No, he's inspired. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, I'm sending my messenger in front of you. And what we find out now when Jesus said, tell him that the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, and the gospels preached. For me and you, it was just a sheer misquote of what Jesus was doing, but not for John. Because the moment John heard it, he's like, dude, scriptures are being fulfilled right in front of my life. And then Jesus connects his life to scripture. So now what we understand is John is not a man of circumstance. John is a man that is led by scripture. Here's the thought to that. That John is a man that's not swayed by circumstance, but he's settled by scripture. He had settled it. Here's what's weird. He had settled that Jesus was God not because he got out of prison. He settled Jesus was God not because he saw the miracles. Once the pressure was on him, he forgot he walked on water. When he got all in a, in a tuss, he's like, okay, now he walked on water, but he still might not be God. But the moment Jesus responds back, well, tell him that everything you hear is nothing more than a fulfillment of Scripture, and I am who Scripture said I am. Go tell him that. Because what we find out about, and I think we all probably need this, we need to settle he's God not because of circumstances changing, but because Scripture says he's God. Amen. So if I want to take an entire generation of younger people and kind of get them to question Jesus' Godness, what do I do? Simple. I simply remove Scripture, and I simply to get you to live by your emotions and your experiences. And then to get you to remove the Bible, because what follower of Jesus would, I simply just tell you, you can't trust that. It's a book written by a bunch of dudes. I'm like, dude, you trust Twitter, so don't go, don't go there. Is this a book written by a bunch of dudes? You can't really trust it. I know, because that's what you need to believe so that he's not God. Because the moment you believe Scripture is just a bunch of dudes that wrote about God with a bunch of mistakes in it, I can't really rely on it. But not John. He wasn't sitting there going, you know, I just don't know about all those old fellows. I don't even know. I don't know. Let me just throw this to you. It's, it's mind-blowing. Forty guys wrote the Bible. But they did it over thousands of years and did not even know each other. And yet, when we put all of their writings together of different guys in different millennia who didn't even know each other, they all wrote the same story. Now that's mind-blowing. It even gets more mind-blowing. Here's where it gets really mind-blowing. Watch what Jesus will say on the road to Emmaus. After he was resurrected, this is Jesus now. Jesus is about to tell us how to know he's God. All right? Jesus said to them, so we're a few days past his resurrection, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? So then, watch, this is weird. So Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets and explained to them from Scripture who He is. 
I'm like, why? I mean, you're sitting on the road to Emmaus. Why wouldn't you just say, hey, fellas, watch this. I'm going to disappear and just disappear. And then get behind him and go, I'm back. I'm God. And then disappear. And then I'm back. I'm God. No, I'm up here in the tree. Like, that's what I would have done. That's much more meaningful and experiential. He was just sitting right there, and all of a sudden, he just floated. And then he turned into a Vulcan. And then, and then all of a sudden, a pigeon. And he came back down, and he was there again. Oh, he must be God. He turned into a pigeon. A pigeon right in front of me. He was God. And then he just floated like six feet off the ground. It was weird. I was looking at his feet thinking, this is God. And then I was sweating. And then we were out there. I mean, no air conditioning. This is weird. He literally told me there's a future way ahead where somebody's going to invent cold air. And then he just blew cold air on me. He said, that's called air conditioning. He must be God. He's got to be God. Because this is the way we know he's God. He performs for us. If you're God, you perform, you, you disappear, you heal them. You, it's the road to Emmaus. You call their middle name and tell them how much they weigh, like the guy at the fair, and you nail it to the wall. No. The resurrected, here's what's weird. The resurrected son of the living God, to prove he was God, did not walk on water, did not heal anybody, did not raise a dead person. He sat down. I wish I would have been there. He sat down and opened up scriptures and said, I'm about to prove to y'all I'm God. I want to tell you something. Uh, my mom's got a Bible. A lot of us, I carry this. So my Bible's apps on here. Do you know that the Bible that you hold that you call a book is living proof he's God? If you want to know, is Jesus really God? The Bible, which is weird, proves he's God. Jesus himself went to the Bible to prove himself as being God. So that's what I want to do this morning in the next five minutes. Here's the thought. The fact check. The Old Testament, that's 39 books of the Old Testament that most of us don't read because it's just weird. It contains over 300 references about Christ the Messiah. So in your Old Testament, there's over 300 references that a Messiah will come in the future to save the world. 47 of those specifically speak directly about his death. So thousands of years before there was ever a Messiah or a Jesus, there was all these writings that were, quote, prophesying the future. They were telling that there would come somebody that would do all of these things. So all these people that wrote thousands of years did not even know each other, but they're all saying the same thing is going to happen in the future. Forty-seven of those talk about his death and life before there was even a method of execution to be talked about. Here's the weird thing. And Jesus fulfilled all 300 of them. I do not know what he was telling them on the road to Emmaus. But can you imagine just going back and going, here, read this. Yep, okay, that's me. Okay, read this one. Okay, that's me. Okay, read. All he's doing is convincing them from old writings that he's the fulfillment. Here's what's strange. I'll give it to you. Fact check. The likelihood. Now, this is from a book called Science Speaks, written by Peter Stoner. I don't know if you smoke weed or not, but that's a cool name. And Robert Newman. 
They wanted to prove the reality of Jesus Christ, so they wrote a book called Science Speaks. And they came up mathematically that the likelihood of one human being, so the likelihood of this Jesus guy not fulfilling all 300 of them or 47 of them, but they pulled out eight of them. And they said the likelihood that one person could fulfill 8,000-year-old prophecies and have eight of them be true of them, they put together a mathematical probability. Here's the mathematical probability. One person fulfilling eight of them is one to the tenth to the seventeenth power. Uh, I had to Google this number because I didn't know how big it was. It's 100 quadrillion. So that's 10 followed by 17 zeros. So they did a mathematical equation based on probabilities. You'd have to be a statistic person and a probabilities to work it out. It's way over my head. They worked out the probabilities and said the probability that this Jewish dude Jesus would fulfill eight of these perfectly is 100 to the quadrillionth chance that it could happen. It means nothing to us. We like million, trillion, and billion, but quadrillion is just what you play on the kindergarten. I quadrillion dog stare you. <laughs> it's a number so big that your head can't even wrap yourself around it. So when Jesus is sitting there reading about himself, he's telling them mathematically it's impossible for it to happen, but it happened and I'm giving it to you in writing to prove it. Here's where it gets strangely weird. These fellas did a, a, a nice service. They wanted to explain what would 10,000 to the 17th power be in a chance. If we took a chance on it, here's what the chance would be. They took the measurement of a silver dollar and they took 10 to the 17th silver dollar, so 100 quadrillion silver dollars. If you laid them on the face of Texas they would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, you take one of those silver dollars and mark it and then stir the whole state up thoroughly and then blindfold a man and tell that man he can go anywhere he wants to go in the state, but he can only pick up one silver dollar and he has to pick up the right silver dollar. What chance would he have of getting the right one? That is the same chance that the prophets could have that Jesus was the one. So it's not just some mistake. He calls himself God. Fill the entire... Here's what's weird. That's so big it just sounds stupid. I would even go one better. I would fill the whole floor up with two feet of silver dollars in this room. Blindfold one of you. I would mark my name on it and mix it up. I'd spin you around and send you into this room and say, good, you get to pick one. And if you pick one and it's the right one, you get every other one in here. And I would do that 20 times over times 10 times a month and you still wouldn't pick the right one. And I would never even feel bad that you would pick the right one because the probability is no different. Here's what's weird. Most people have more faith in the lotto. They'll be standing there going, give me another one. Give me another one. <sighs> Don't you know that there's only one in 321 million chances? I know, but that's a chance. <laughs> Do you see down here at the very bottom, it says one in 71 million people might win this pick three. That's still a chance. I believe. 
I just spent $400. I believe so much. Oh, oh that didn't work. Oh, oh, God, that didn't work. Oh. People, people will stand there forever. I, I know because I'm in marathon going, my God, how many more of these you want? You're probably not going to win. I could win, though. It's $320 million, but somebody's going to win, preacher. If it's going to be somebody, it's going to be me because I've already told God if I win, I'm paying the church off. You hadn't even given the church $5. Right? Why will you sit there at the marathon QT scratching a card that has one point to every 71 million chance, but you'll buy a Powerball? But when I tell you Jesus is one to the quadrillion and he's real, it's like, I just don't know. That seems so fake. I think it's because the devil doesn't want you to know he's God. He wants you doubting it your whole life. He wants you always wanting him to perform. And if he doesn't perform, he's not God. And what Jesus showed on the road to Damascus, I don't ever have to perform and I'm God. I fulfilled every scripture and I'm God. So here's the conclusion. Is Jesus only God to you when he remedies your circumstance? Or is he God because he fulfilled scripture? And it is a hard place to come as a human to admit he's God because scripture declares him as God because I need him to prove he's God. But there's something powerful about the Baptist that will say, John the Baptist, that he doesn't ever have to get me out of prison. He's God. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to serve, and I'm going to live like he's God because the Bible says he's God. And if the Bible says he's God, I'm in the game the whole way. If the Bible proves he's God and Scripture proves he's God, count me in. I will not be a weak, anemic, pouty little man. If the Scriptures have proven he's God, he's God. He doesn't have to perform for me. He's God. Well, why would you pray? He tells me to pray. Well, why would you pray for healing? Because he's the healer. Because he's the one that sets people free. That's why. But I don't believe he's God because he does those good things. He's God because he's declared himself as God. And when your faith rests in that, you're strong. When your faith rests in that, you're not out there pouting when a prayer doesn't get answered. You're pressing on. You're taking the kingdom with force. You're violently pressing on. Well, he didn't answer five prayers. I don't care. I still pray because he's God. Well, he didn't heal your elbow. I don't care. He's still God, and I'm still asking him to heal it because he's given me the authority to do so. Because he's God. And what we, this is my opinion, what we have raised in this culture is a generation of weak men who need God to perform so they can believe he's real. And by men, I'm including women too. We just want God to perform to prove He's God. And we've raised a weak Christianity. Versus people that stand up and go, I don't care what people say, He's God. I don't care what the culture says, He's God. I don't care if I prayed for five people and they all died. I'm still praying for healing. I'm going to hold because He's a healer. He's a redeemer. He's a peace giver. He's a hope giver. He's a life giver. Because I've settled He's God, not because He jumps through my hoops. He's God and I'll jump through His hoops. That's where we live. And when the church comes to that place, 
when the people of God land on his God, I tell you, we will shift things. Cities will change. Righteousness will rule. Families will change. Friendships will change. Why? Because I believe it. Here's what I've done for you, and I hope it helps you. I don't want you to just think I preach and then shoot you out the door. But this is where you're going to have to become a mature man or a woman. On the QR code, if you scan it, it's going to take you to all our links, but I, add, I had Phil add one for us. And it's in the red exclamation point that says, The Prophecies of Jesus Fulfilled. If you click that link, it takes you to all 300 verses that declare what Jesus is, and then it gives you the, the verse where he fulfilled it. So you'll get to read the prophet that prophesied it and the Jesus who fulfilled it. This would just be my simple advice. If you took one prophecy a day and just got a hold of it and confessed it and learned it, by next Easter, we'd have a strong group of people. We would show up on resurrection morning going, man, I'll take one for the team. Yeah, I'm not getting out of the game. I'm in the game. Matter of fact, I'm not only in the game, I brought 42 people with me to be in the game because that's how certain I am as God. I go around and tell everybody if we simply got back to why is he God? Now, I could give you a video of Ryan saying, well, he's God because he healed my neck. And I'd go, praise God. He's God because he healed my back. He's God because he healed my marriage. And I'd go, yes, praise God. But that's not why he's God. He's God because He fulfills Scripture, not because He performs. And once you land there, this God of Scripture, here's what I can say to that, will never, ever, ever disappoint you, turn His back on you, or forsake you. He will be there always. And when your faith rests in who He is, here's the conclusion. When we come together for communion today, I'm just asking, will you declare him as God? He fulfilled every scripture of every prophet. He owes you nothing, yet, here's his grace, he offers you life. He owes us nothing, but he offers us everything. He, he, doesn't, owe, he doesn't have to heal me, but he offers healing. He doesn't have to fix my problems. But he offers to be my comfort. He simply looks at me and says, Mark, do you believe that I'm God? And I'm 57 and I'm coming to the conclusion, he's God, he's God, he's God. And if he's God, watch out. Because if you serve him, you'll never have a regret. If you serve him, it pays to serve him. You'll never be sitting there going, poor pitiful me. You will have the faith that rises up to go, he's God. And he's God because he's proven it. Let me pray for you this morning. Father God, in Jesus.